Well, good evening, church. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're continuing tonight in our study through the book of Samuel. And tonight we come to 1 Samuel 3. But as we begin our time together tonight, I'd like to begin by telling you the story of a man named Misko. Misko was raised in utter spiritual darkness, in a family that openly hated God in communist Yugoslavia. He grew up under the influence of his parents and, of course, the iron fist grip of a communist regime. And so Misko was raised as a devout atheist. But his atheistic beliefs were shaken somewhat after the sudden death of his 14-year-old niece. And he found himself wondering, is there anything to life after, after death? Well, by the age of 17, Misko decided that he wanted more, so he did what many tried to do. He tried to escape and head to the West to find a better life. And he snuck past the border guards at Italy, but he was quickly caught, imprisoned, or caught, deported, and imprisoned. After his release from prison, Misko was then forced to serve in the Yugoslavian National Army, where he was, in, he was a part of a battalion that was made up only of convicts. He was one of, uh, of many other felons and convicts. Well, there he met a man named Simo, whose kindness and gentle spirit stood out so dramatically from the rest of these convicts, as you can imagine. You see, in this part of the world, it was illegal to be a Christian. It was illegal to possess a Bible, and it was illegal to even talk about the Bible. But after many months, Misko eventually learned the reason for his new friend Simo's hope. Simo was a Christian. The two struck up a friendship, and in spite of severe penalties, Simo and Misko snuck out to a field where Simo shared the good news that there is a God who loved him so much that he would send his son to die for him and offer eternal life. And for the first time, divine supernatural light flooded into the darkness of Misko's heart. Immediately, Misko wanted more. So, he took an entire month's wages and purchased a smuggled New Testament in. He read it six times straight. He immediately sought out a way to find the whole Bible, and he borrowed a copy of the whole Bible, and he read it through immediately. God saved Misko. Through the light of his word and through the light of his testimony as someone spoke God's word to him. Well, Misko was promptly disowned by his family. He faced severe persecution, but now he had light. Now Misko is a pastor and he carries the light of the gospel torch from village to village. He has once told a story of how one winter he received a secret invitation to take the gospel to a rural village in Bosnia. On the way out there, he was delayed by a severe blizzard, snowdrifts that were taller than the car that he was supposed to be traveling in. So, since he couldn't make the trip by car, Misko walked all night long through waist-deep snow. 
He didn't reach the village until 4 a.m. the next day that he was supposed to arrive. And so once he got there, half frozen and exhausted, he, of course, assumed that all the villagers would have given up on him and gone to bed. But there they were, the entire village, waiting in the middle of the night in a blizzard, waiting to hear the word of God. An hour later, after a cup of coffee, Misko stood up and preached the word of God. And Bosnian villagers in the town of Madrika received the word of light with great gladness. Friends, there is no darkness that is too dark that cannot be pierced by the light of God's word. There is no darkness. And that's what our text is about tonight. It's about a God who speaks into darkness and brings light through his word. But the light of God's word is a joyful thing for those who receive it. But God's word is a terrifying thing to those who reject it. And what's even more terrifying is that we will see that it is actually possible to be engaged in all sorts of religious activities and not actually know God. And this actually brings us to the main idea of our text tonight, which I'll read in just a moment. We're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we are going to see from Israel and her wicked priests that religious activity is not a true indicator for genuine spiritual life. True spiritual life comes from hearing and receiving God's word. True spiritual life comes from hearing and receiving God's word. So, let's now read together 1 Samuel chapter 3. A very familiar passage from childhood Sunday school. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was laying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here am I, and ran to Eli and said, Here am I, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord again called Samuel, and Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. Verse 10. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. 
And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called to Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more, if you hide anything from me, that all that he has told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Silo, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Silo by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Let's pray and ask that God would reveal his word to us. Father, we come to a familiar passage tonight. We come with many different backgrounds, many circumstances, many conditions in our heart. There are distractions. We're tired. We may be weary. We may be bored by your word. Father, help us. We know that we have parts of our heart that are hard to you. So would you break through? pray, Father, that tonight you would accomplish spiritual miracles. I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let your word, the only word that has power, let it remain and change us. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. As I've said, the main idea of this passage is that true spiritual life is not measured in religious activity, but in knowing and hearing God's word. The central theme of this text really is the voice or the word of God. Perhaps one of the easiest ways, and I think one of the most interesting ways to see this is the way the chapter is bookend. It begins, if you look down in verse 1, and the word of the Lord was, what? Rare in those days. But then when we come to the end of the chapter, verse 21, the Lord has appeared at Silo. And then chapter 4, verse 1, the word of Samuel from God came to all of Israel. When the text begins, the word of the Lord is rare. And when the text ends, the word has come to all of Israel. But we have to start at the beginning and let's see how this unfolds. The first thing that we see in this text, I think, is the absence of God's word. We've been talking for several weeks. We've been highlighting the bleak spiritual darkness that is hanging over Israel. And it is continued in this text. Because it's a constant theme of the writer of Samuel, it shows up in all of these first couple chapters. In the first three chapters, in the first three verses of chapter 3, we see the author continue this theme. Look down at verse 1. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Okay, so the text seems to be making it clear that the Lord was, the word of the Lord was rare because of sin. It was because of the corruption of the priesthood. It was because of the idolatry of the people. God's word dried up because of sin. 
And it was truly a dismal state of affairs as we've seen in past weeks. There were no prophets in the land. There was no one to speak the word of the Lord. And the priests, the religious leaders, those who were to mediate between God and men were terribly corrupt, sleeping with women at the gate of the tabernacle. And even the judges, who we had read about in the book of Judges just before this, were dying off and barely effective, and there was no one to discern the will of God. There's other indicators of the incredible darkness that hung over the land here. Down in verse 2, we again see how the author is drawing our attention to Eli's blindness. Eli, the high priest. Now, just as we saw that Hannah's barrenness symbolized, in a sense, Israel's spiritual barrenness, so now do we see Eli's blindness symbolize the blindness of, spiritual, of Israel's spiritual leaders. In chapter 1, Eli could not even figure out if Hannah was drunk or praying. He didn't know what fervent spiritual prayer looked like. He can't seem to see the wickedness of his two wicked sons. At least he can't see them well enough to act and do something. And then in chapter 3, it takes three attempts for him to finally figure out that is the voice of the Lord that's coming to the boy Samuel. Israel's spiritual leaders lacked spiritual discernment and judgment. And so we have a classic case of the blind leading the blind. And then in verse 3, we get another indicator that the lamp of, the God had, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. This is not a note on the lighting arrangement in the tabernacle. This is intended to communicate something. It's another discouraging sign that the lamp of God, which is always to stay lit, even it was dimming and on the verge of going out. As we reflect again on the darkness, the spiritual darkness of Israel, I think one of the things that should strike us about the situation is where this is taking place. This is, the author does not go to the brothels of Israel to point out the wickedness. He does not go to the bars. He does not go to the political gatherings. He goes to the tabernacle. He goes to the religious, uh, the religious people. We see there's a great deal of religious activity in Israel. There were buildings, there were rituals, there were events. They may have planned revivals, but in spite of all of this religious activity, there was no revelation from God. Was there? There's no revelation from God. There were the trappings. There was the outward appearance of a healthy spiritual community. But once you looked on the inside, you saw that things were rotten. Because all alongside this religious conservatism, the people still kept their idols. And their lives were marked with secret sin. This is an important lesson for us to consider. It's a lesson that is taught all throughout the New Testament. It's a lesson that we looked at in depth in the book of James. You can fake the Christian life. You can fake it. For a long time, you may not get caught on earth, but you cannot fake it before the Lord. One of the primary things we learn from the ministry of Jesus is how much he hated fake religion. He hated it. He spoke about it all the time. And just as we will read several chapters later here in 1 Samuel, we know that that's because man may look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at 
the heart. I'm reminded by the terrifying words that are recorded in Isaiah 29, verse 13. He speaks of a people who draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is only a commandment taught by men. I wonder how much of our fear of God is just a commandment taught by men. Or is it real? Can I ask you tonight just to consider, Mark has already begun asking this question. Have you been guilty of carrying on religion just to be seen by men? Do you come to church to meet with God or to fulfill some duty? Do you pray in secret or do you only pray in public when others listen and are forming opinions about your walk? False religion has no value. But Israel was not without hope. We come now to the establishment of God's word. As dark as the situation in Israel was, it is not hopeless. Once again, we see the little boy Samuel. He is a beacon of hope for us. He's intended to give the reader hope. Do you remember how the author worked this in last week in chapter 2 with these constant whisperings, talking about the wickedness of, of, of uh, Hophni and Phinehas? But there's this constant whispering, don't forget about Samuel. God's up to something. Don't forget about Samuel. And that's what we have again here. Verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare. But the boy Samuel was ministering. And then again in verse 4, we see all of a sudden the word of the Lord no longer is rare, but God speaks. Then the Lord called Samuel. Don't miss it. In the midst of this darkness, after all of this sin-induced silence, God speaks. Friends, let's not miss the grace that's delivered to us in these words. Even though God's people had forsaken him, even though the priesthood was corrupted, even though all of Israel was eventually, very soon, getting ready to reject God as king, God still spoke to Israel. The lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out. And one of the things that this shows us about God is God solves problems by speaking. When God sees darkness, when there is chaos, when there is sin, all throughout scripture, God's remedy for this, God speaks. The God who spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. How did that work out? (laughs) There was light. He has spoken again. The God who would one day say the people living in darkness have seen a great light. All throughout the Bible, we see that God solves the problems of darkness by speaking his word. Friends, what darkness are you facing in your life? What situation seems hopeless? Are you struggling with fear and anxiety? Are you entangled in some destructive secret sin? Does tomorrow feel hopeless to you? Are you discouraged and afraid? Let the light of God's word shine into your heart and watch how light overcomes darkness.
We're seeing in this calling of Samuel, here in verses 4 all the way through 14, uh, the, the calling of Samuel. But the point of the story is not, I don't think, to teach us how to listen for the still small voice of God. Right? I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that can get us into a lot of trouble. Instead, what's going on is this is showing how God established his word in Israel. God is setting up a prophetic word in Israel. And he decides to do it not with the priest not with the cloth, right? He does it with a little boy. (laughs) He does it with a little boy. And once again, we see one of the key themes of the book of Samuel emerging. God's dramatic calling of this little boy Samuel highlights for us once again, once again, how God loves to show off his strength and his power and his involvement by using small pipsqueak people. God uses small things because when he uses small things, it shows off how great his strength is. Because there can be no mistaking it. Samuel is not the hero in this. There's nothing about it. Samuel's not the hero. God is the hero. Friends, let us not be afraid to attempt great things for God because we know that God likes to conquer giants with little guys. That should give us courage as we go out and do kingdom work. He has hidden his treasure in common jars of clay like you and me. But another thing that the author is doing here is that he's making it clear that Samuel is the replacement of the old regime. Last week, we talked in detail about how the author uh, contrasted Samuel to Eli's two wicked sons. But in chapter 3, he's contrasting Samuel to Eli. And we're not going to go through all those things tonight. But more than that, we see that he actually is comparing Samuel to Moses, who was the last prophet, the last true prophet in Israel. Some of the similarities, remember Moses had a very dramatic calling into service, right? Burning bush, taking your feet off, taking your shoes off, holy ground. You remember a couple of things going on here, but just like with Moses, God called Samuel's name out twice. Samuel, Samuel. And just like with Moses, Samuel answered, here I am. Right? It's really clear similarities. And the author is making it clear that Samuel is picking up in the prophetic ministry of Moses. Just think about what Moses did for God's people. He was the one to whom God gave his word. God gave his word to Moses, and now God is giving his word to Samuel. What did Moses do with God's word? He gave it to the people. What is Samuel going to do with God's word? He gives it to the people. Just as God would soon reject Saul, right? You know the story that's coming? God would eventually reject Saul in favor of David. God has rejected Eli's household in favor of Samuel. There's a changing of the guards here. One of the spots in the text that I think is, uh, is, so, is somewhat interesting. Look down in verse 15. Remember when you're reading the Bible, everything that is included matters. Right? The authors don't, the, the Bible, biblical authors are not just filling space. Right? All the words matter. If you look down at verse 15, you see a picture of the changing of the guards. It's very subtle. The text says that, uh, so this is after Samuel received the word of the Lord. The text says, Samuel opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Why would it tell us that? 
right? Is this, is this uh, the author telling us who had the deacon of the week responsibilities? This is a richly symbolic act. Samuel was the replacement for Eli's wicked sons. They were busy sleeping with women where? At the doors. And here comes Samuel opening up the doors. And the picture that we get at the end of the chapter, remember in chapter 4 verse 1, the word of God goes to all of Israel through Samuel. So Samuel's symbolically he's opening the doors and now God's word, God is speaking again. It's not through Eli. It's not through Hophni and Phinehas. It's through a boy and it is going through the doors to all the people. Once again, God's word is flowing out of the place of God. The word of the Lord has been rare, but now the word of Samuel has come to all of Israel. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to examine the content of God's word to to Samuel. And this brings us to see that the rejection of God's word will end in judgment. It's perhaps the third point if you keep up with these things. The rejection of God's word ends in judgment. Now, so far, I've been describing God's word as a, as a means of grace. That, that God is, God, when God speaks, it is an incredibly good thing and it's, an, it's a measure of his grace towards us. And it is. It is. But when we consider the message that God gives Samuel, it may not seem very gracious, right? Especially if you're Eli, and especially if you're related to Eli, it may not seem at first glance like a good thing. And that's because when God speaks to Samuel, he gives a ear tingling. Just think about that. Have you ever heard something so dramatic that it makes, it just strikes you so much? It's the ear tingling, terrifying message of judgment. Down in verse 12, verses 12, 13, and 14, make it clear that since Eli's sons had rejected God's word through their constant disregard for God's law, they would be judged. A judgment was coming for Eli too. Eli was also guilty. Why? Because he had done nothing to restrain them. God held him in part responsible for not taking action. And now God is going to make good on his promise, the promise he gave in chapter 2. And should we not remember, God does not let any of his words fall to the ground. Every promise will find fulfillment. All of it. There are many promises, friends, that we are waiting on. Many. He will keep his word so Eli was, was guilty too, and now judgment was coming. And friends, we must not forget that God speaks judgment and condemnation on sin. It can be very easy to speak so much of grace that we forget that God speaks judgment and condemnation on sin. God is a righteous God, which means that God always does what is right. And the right response towards sin is anger and judgment and justice. God always judges sin with the severity it deserves. God always judges sin with the severity it deserves, either in hell or on the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, when we speak the gospel of truth, we must not shrink back from speaking or meditating on the righteous hatred that God has toward sin. 
And we must not forget that sin and an awareness of sin actually paves the way for the gospel. For only those who are under the condemnation of sin, only those can see that they have a need for the gospel. The gospel is for sinners. It's for sick people. So sin, in a sense, paves the way. But there's another important lesson for us here. That's the dangerous effect that unrepentant sin can have on our heart. Mark alluded to this in his prayer. The Bible calls this hardening. Hardening. The Bible consistently teaches that when we know God's word, when we know God's word and then fail to obey it, that is hardening our hearts against God. This is what Israel did all throughout the wilderness. And we're encouraged, don't be like Israel. Don't know God's word and then don't do God's word. That ends bad, right? Think Eli's family. That ends bad. Don't harden your heart against God. This is what Eli's sons were guilty of. And verses 12 through 14 made it clear that they continually and willfully despised God's word. If you go back and read all the description of these two jokers, you see their sin was deep and God's anger was deep. In fact, their sin was so severe, the text says that no sacrifice was available for them because they had despised the sacrifice itself. Back in chapter 2, verse 26, the, the text reminds us that they had so given themselves over to sin that their hearts had grown hard. Friends, this is still a danger for believers. This is an ever-present danger for believers. Do you realize that every time, every single time that we refuse to obey God's revealed word to us, there's hardening that's going on in our hearts? Every time. You don't wake up and end up like Eli's sons, but each time we refuse to obey God, our hearts grow hard. We grow dull to him and to his word. And the consistent message of the scriptures, the terrifying message of the scripture, is that apart from the special grace of God, God will in judgment give people over to the hardness of their hearts. We see this in Romans 1 and it is terrifying. And friends, the same thing happens today. When we fail to receive and obey the received word of God, his judgment is to allow the hardening of our hearts. One of the things that I think we see in this text, that, and as we think about the scriptures as a whole, is that another thing actually happens. As we harden our hearts towards God, what actually happens is his word dries up. His word dries up on us. We see this in the situation of Israel and we see that God acts like this throughout the scriptures where judgment for sin is simply silence. God won't speak anymore. He grows silent. If you have your Bible, flip over to Amos chapter 8. This is a terrifying passage. This is not just true of Samuel's day, but this is throughout the scriptures. Amos chapter 8 verse 11 Might have to check the table of contents. Amos chapter 8. Verse 11 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. 
They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Friends, when God's people remain in sin, we become nearly unable to hear the voice of the Lord. Sin deafens our ears. It hardens our heart. This is what was taking place in Israel. Because of sin, God grew silent. And then as an act of mercy, he pierced the silence. Could this be the same thing for us? Could it be that the reason that we have seen so little movement from God, could it be that the reason for that is because we have failed to obey what he's revealed to us in his word? Just think about that for a moment. Could it be that we've seen God move so little in the life of our church or in your own life because we are failing to obey what he has clearly told us to do? Could it be the reason that you have so little desire for God's word because you've hardened your heart by failing to obey what he has clearly given to you? Could that be the case? Do you remember back in James how James taught us that those who have been brought forth by the word of truth, chapter 1, are able to prove that they are brought forth by the word of truth by doing it. You prove you believe the truth by doing the truth. All sorts of people hear the truth. There's all sorts of types of soil out there. But people who receive God's truth obey God's truth. We learn here that God always judges sin with an appropriate severity. And even as his people, we can receive judgment if we do not act upon the word that we have received. There's much more we could say about that, but let's move on to the next point as we think about the reception of God's word. Because God's word is not entirely rejected because we see Samuel. In this story, Samuel is a picture of what it looks like to receive God's word. In the little boy Samuel, we learn that salvation and spiritual life begin with God's voice. Let me say that again. Salvation and spiritual life begin with God's voice. Down in verse 7, we see, this is so interesting, I hadn't noticed this before until I studied it this time, that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Until when? Until God found him and spoke to him. (laughs) Samuel would not have known God unless God took the initiative. Unless God came and spoke to him. And that is exactly what God did. And God's word is life. This has been the way of God all throughout history. It was through his word that he brought the universe into existence. It was through his word that he called Abraham and Moses and now Samuel into his service. And this was true for all of Israel. Now that God has established his prophetic word through the ministry of Samuel, there is once again hope for God's people. Spiritual life begins with God's voice. And we as God's people, living in a totally different era, a totally different period of redemptive history, we can still say the same thing. That we owe our spiritual life to Him. Listen as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. We have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding Word of God. The God whose Word creates light. 
is the God whose word creates life. He speaks light. He speaks life. Life begins with the word of God. But just as new spiritual life comes through hearing God's word, so does spiritual renewal. So does spiritual renewal. We'll see how Israel was renewed in the coming chapters. We'll see this, how they were renewed as they received the word of the Lord as it was delivered by Samuel. But right here, here in chapter 3, we have hints. We have hints in the text that those who receive God's word with gladness and obedience will enjoy growth and revival. This is kind of subtle, but I, I, think it's, I think it's fair. One of the ways that we see this is the constant refrain. We saw it last week. We see it again here in verse 19. Samuel what? He grew. He grew and the Lord was with him. One of the, one of the ways that we're seeing this all throughout, Eli is so old and so, so he's rotting. His eyes don't even work. He's gotten so fat he can't even stand up. We don't see him ever standing. He's always sitting. He's laying down. He is, he is on the way out and yet Samuel is growing. And just like Eli and just like his sons who will soon be destroyed because they rejected God's word, Samuel is growing and Samuel is flourishing and friends we can expect that as we hear and and respond to God's word we will enjoy spiritual growth this is the great secret of the Christian life growth comes through obedience to the word do you want to know how to grow in your walk with God devour the word and obey what you read we want to see revival so obey the scriptures. We'll see God move. We see Samuel growing and we can trust that we will enjoy spiritual growth. The same was true for Samuel and Israel. And the same is true for you and me as individuals. And the same is true for Trinity Baptist Church. Spiritual revival will always come from hearing God's word. It will not come without God's word. This is why at Trinity, preaching holds such a central place in the ministry of our church. Because wherever God's word is spoken, and wherever God's word is received with obedience, there is power for great revival. You have the ingredients. God's word spoken, God's word received, the spirit gives life. Friends, if we want to see revival, if you want to see revival in your heart, if you want to see revival in this church, this is where we go. We receive the word. And what's interesting for us is God's word no longer comes to us through prophets. We don't need Samuel anymore. We don't need the prophetic ministry of some new man. We don't need them anymore because we have the final word. The final word has come to us in a person, the person, Jesus Christ, who also was a little boy from nowhere, who also grew in wisdom and stature, as we saw. We're seeing this over and over again. Samuel grew in wisdom and stature, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. And yet this little boy went on to endure the full wrath of God for sin. 
And in doing so, he made a way for sinners not to experience the judgment of God and to be set free from the bondage of sin through repentance and faith in Christ. Friends, God still uses people to deliver his word. One of the primary means today is through pastors who speak and preach and teach the word of God to their people. But God also uses ordinary messengers like Simo, who simply spoke the word of God, the person, Jesus Christ. Friends, we have great reason to trust God's word, to receive it and to obey it. Not to reject it, which will lead to hardening and judgment, but to trust it and to proclaim it. And as we do, we can expect growth. We can expect a great harvest. You see, through Samuel, God delivered his word to his people. And in doing so, he restored an entire nation of rebellious, idolatrous wanderers. And in these last days, he's spoken to us through his Son. So just as Jesus said over and over again, to him who has ears, let him hear. May we be a people who hear God's word, do God's word, speak God's word, and expect great things from God's word. Let's be a people of the book, not who only hear, but who do. We pray with me as we close. Father, I pray that tonight that you would bring clarity to your word. I pray that it would weigh in our hearts. And I pray, Father, that by your spirit you would lead us to obey. I pray, Father, for those who are in this room, that if any of us have secret sin, if any of us have hardened our hearts towards you, Shine light. Shine light into our hearts, we pray. Help us to obey. And we'll give you all the glory and all the praise because you are the author of our spiritual life and you are the perfecter of our spiritual life. And for that, we give you praise. And it's in the name of Christ, our Savior, the Word, we pray. Amen. Thanks for being in church. You must stand and go in peace.